I was sitting around this week preparing for this message. Um, you can turn over to John chapter 3. We'll get there eventually. And um, I said, honey, I want to coin a brand new term. She said, okay. I said, I'm going to call it witnesslessness. Witnesslessness. So I looked it up on Google Dictionary. It doesn't exist. But here's what it kind of means. Witnesslessness. The lessness means the state of being without something, okay? So would you say that Christianity as a whole, obviously not members of this church in particular in light of the, the amount of people you invited out last week, which was an incredible blessing. But would you not say, though, as a whole, Christianity struggles with witnesslessness, the state of not witnessing? Or if you want another word, evangelophobia, which I don't think that's a word either. Okay. Over the next two weeks, I want to talk through this issue of evangelism with you today from John, from the life of John the Baptist, and then next week some real practical pointers from the Apostle Paul from Colossians chapter 4. And here, here's, here's, here's my thought. We could add to this, but I was thinking about this this week. Um, we have the best news in the world, don't we? And we're often afraid to share it. And if you're like me, sometimes it's because I get so busy. It's not that I don't love the world. I just don't really take a lot of time to think about it. Because life is so crazy busy. You know, last night, can I tell you something that happened? Every Saturday night, whenever we come up, I always stop at the U.S. gas place there on 22, right off of 78, you know, because Jersey gas is much more, is much cheaper than, than Pennsylvania gas, you know. So I always fill up there at the same time every week. And, you know, every time I pull in there, the same guy waits on my car. And I told Sherry last night, I haven't even thought about him as a soul. I've just thought of him as the guy that needs to pump my gas fast so I can move on. So I asked my wife, I said, do we have a track or something in the car? Couldn't find one, but next week, I'm going to give that guy something. I'm thinking if I, because I, I said last night, I said, hey, I'll see you next week. Because every Saturday night, I pull up and he's there. At least the last six times, he's done my gas. But I just kind of scoot right on by because I got to get down to the chapel. And scoop by you in the process. And God convicted me on that. I'm busy. Did you ever get afraid? What if you evangelize a family member, an extended family member, and it goes south and you still have to see them on a consistent basis? Is that, is that not hard, folks? Isn't it? Oh, they're going to call me the kook. The holy roller, the who, who knows what they're going to. And, and do I want to bring that kind of tension into our relationship? Sometimes it's easier just not to speak. Is it true? I mean, if you're like me, I have some extended family members. I'm thinking like, I don't know. Do I really want to do this? Even though it's good news. We fear that we might affect a relationship. Perhaps you fear that 
If you say something, you won't have the right answer. What if, what, what if they ask me who Cain's wife was? It's okay to say, I'm not sure. But we, 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 we fear a whole host of things. So here's my question. Is it worth it? Because it does cost. If it didn't cost, we'd all do it more than we do. And what I want to do this morning, I want to look at the life of a witness. He's called a witness. And I just want to kind of walk through his life, and, and I want you to see how much it cost him. And yet he still did it. And how might that help us as the body of Christ to take that next step? Evangelism is like prayer. You can always feel guilty about it because you never do enough. I get that. And all I'm asking is that you will let God do his work in your life to take whatever next step his spirit prompts you to take. Is that not fair? And, and if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we are so delighted you're with us. And we're talking about the importance of telling you about Jesus. John the Baptist, as you know, we have his story in what we call the Gospels. And I, I want you to just, yeah, he was chosen by God to be prophet of the Most High. That's true. But in Luke chapter 1, in verse 80, listen to what the Bible says. After he was born, the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now, I have a lot of questions when I read that passage, and I don't have a lot of answers for you because that's all we have. Luke chapter 1, verse 80. And we read over in Matthew's account when John the Baptist is presented. So, so he, he actually comes on the scene in his public ministry at about the age of 30. And all we know is that between perhaps the time he was a teenager, and we don't know exactly what time, from about that point until the time he's 30, there's one thing over his life. Wilderness, desert, that's where he lived. How would you like that? Your son's graduating from high school. So what are you going to be doing, honey? I'll be living in the wilderness. For how long? Don't know exactly. Just wait until God comes along and tells me what to do. We, I mean, we don't know the details there. What did it cost John? It cost him his livelihood. He wasn't going to become an engineer. He was going to go out into the desert and wait till just the right time when God told him to start his public ministry. And then what he does, what's he wear? You remember what he wears? Camel hair, now, which is probably really good, you know, when, when it rains and so on and so forth. But, you know, this stuff's got to get itchy. And do you think he had like 10 sets in his closet? No. 
Camel hair, belt, and boy, did he have a good meal. You know what he ate? Locusts and wild honey. Now, I like honey, but not with locusts. <laughs> I like it with peanut butter, you know, with, with, with peanut butter or something like that. Yeah. And so, so you look at this guy's whole livelihood and you say, so what's your son going to do? He's out in the wilderness wearing camel stuff. And, and we, we know it was enough of an issue because later in Matthew's gospel, when they looked at him, they said, he must be demonic. There he is. John, what did it cost you? John would say, well, it did cost me my livelihood. I hung in the wilderness. And at the age of 30, wearing camel hair and a leather belt, eating wild honey and locusts, I began my ministry. Okay? John. What else did it cost you? You know what he would tell you? Not only did it cost him his livelihood, it cost him his impact. Follow this. You know what we know about John the Baptist? You know how long his ministry lasted? No more than a year and a half. <laughs> he waits all his life. 33 years of age, steps on the scene. Okay, man, a thriving ministry. And did it not start out pretty powerfully? Oh, I mean, people were coming from all over Judea, the Bible tells us. They're coming from all, they're flocking to hear this guy. Religious leaders are coming up and everybody's saying, and, and, and John the Baptist comes on the scene and he says, get ready because the Messiah is coming and your baptism just is a picture of the fact that you need to be ready. He's coming. And so he and people are coming like crazy. But I want you to know something. A year and a half later, he's in prison. In some sense, people from the outside would say, flash in the pan. And not just that. But when Jesus came on the scene, all of his followers or most of, many of which, I shouldn't say all, but many of his followers switched teams. Look at John chapter 3 for just a second. It's a really, really interesting passage. So it's not just a short ministry, but a diminishing ministry. John chapter 3, verse 22. Listen to what the Bible says. Jesus has been introduced. John and Jesus then are both ministering. There's this overlap. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anan near Salim, because there was much water there, and they were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. There arose, therefore, a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. And they came to John, and they said to him, John's disciples come to John and they say this, Rabbi, teacher, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, Jesus, to whom you have borne witness, okay, behold, he is baptizing and everyone's coming to him. In other words, there's a period of time early on when both John and Jesus are baptizing. And John is pointing to Jesus 
And more and more of, of, of his people that are coming to him now are all going to Jesus. And some of John's disciples who are still staying with him are saying like, hello, we had this great public ministry. Yeah, it was pointing to Jesus, but nonetheless. And people are going from our team to his team. What does John say? Verse 27. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejo rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And so this joy of mine has been made full. Can you imagine next week? Suppose Clay had asked me to become one of his groomsmen. He didn't. It's okay, Clay. It's all right. And suppose we come to the wedding and Stephanie's ready to come down the aisle. Clay's there and, and all of a sudden I stop and say, wait a second, wait a second. Why do they get all the attention? You know, think by her. You know, you know just, what, what would you do with me? You would think, get that guy out of here. No, no, stop going. Hey, you're a groomsman. Get out of here. It's about the bride and the, the bride and the bridegroom, for goodness sakes. Right? I mean, honestly, I'd be a loony. You'd, you'd drive me out. Rightly so. John the Baptist said, that's all, that's, that's all I am. I'm a groomsman. It's all about him. It's not about me, right? It's a powerful image. Verse 31, he who comes from above, I'm sorry, verse 30, heavens. Um, verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. It's one of the hardest passages in scriptures for us because we want, if you're like me, we want to have impact, we want to do. Here's John the Baptist who's saying, my ministry to be effective must decrease. That's what it must do. A year and a half, that's all it lasts for. And as soon as Jesus comes on the scene, it ticks down for John the Baptist. John, what did it cost you to witness about Jesus? He said, what cost me a livelihood? I mean, I was, the, I was that wilderness guy out there. It cost me my influence and impact because it was only a year and a half and it, there was this uptick and then down like that. What else did it cost you, John? John would tell you it cost him his reputation. I told you earlier in Matthew chapter 11, when Jesus is talking of John the Baptist, he says, a lot of the religious leaders looked at John the Baptist and they said, he's a loony out in the wilderness who must be demon-possessed. Is it possible for you and I to be called Jesus freaks or something like that because we love Jesus? Of course it's possible. It is possible for us to have this reputation of weird. Now, we shouldn't try to be weird. Right? We should try to be normal people. 
who deeply love Jesus Christ. But if we do that, we're living in a world where some people are going to misunderstand. John, what will it cost you? John would say, cost me my livelihood. Cost me my impact. Cost me my reputation. He'd say, it also cost me my dreams and expectations. Will you turn with me for just a second to Matthew chapter 11? Matthew chapter 11. It's a really interesting passage. Remember, I told you John the Baptist's ministry lasted for about a year and a half. He was then imprisoned by Herod Antipas because he said, the woman, you just took your brother's wife and that's wrong and they put him in prison. You know how long he was in prison? For a year to a year and a half. So here's a guy who waits 30 years, finally steps on the scene. He gets a year and a half to minister, and then he's stuck in prison for a year to a year and a half. Like, what is that all about? And he's got a crisis, a bit of a crisis of faith while he's in prison in Matthew chapter 11. I want you to think about this, folks. This is very, very, very important because this can happen to all of us. Is it possible for us to want to witness to Christ, but our dreams and our expectations of what that will look like don't work out exactly the way we think? Is that possible? It can happen all the time. If you would have asked John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, when John the Baptist talked about his ministry, he said, I will baptize you with water, but the one coming after me, he will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. And in John's mentality, John was thinking this. The Messiah is going to come on the scene. People will be given the spirit. And then God will judge them with fire. <laughs> and that's going to be all this one event. And we're going to live in a glorious kingdom with this Messiah. He's going to turn back all the enemies. And it's going to be wonderful. Is that what happened? John the Baptist is sitting in prison. He says to himself, this isn't what I expected. I thought Messiah was going to come. I mean, I, I was preaching the right thing about this king. What am I sitting in prison for? And what he didn't understand is that Jesus would come twice. And in his first coming, he would die for the sins of the world. He would resurrect he would establish his kingdom with the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. But the fire of judgment, that's been postponed at least 2,000 years. John thought this. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus, John sends his disciples to Jesus and he says, are, are you the Messiah? I mean, I spent like all my life saying, He's coming, thinking it's you. Is it you? Now, th that's a crisis in faith. And Jesus says, go back and tell John, I am Messiah. But it's not going to work out exactly the timing in the way that he thought. And he needs to accept that. John, what did it cost you? 
My livelihood was planned out for me from day one, not before I was even born. I had no say in the matter. Out in the wilderness, there you go. When I finally came on the scene, year and a half, diminishing impact. Reputation, not case in the wilderness, demon possessed. And my expectations, they didn't work out exactly the way I expected. John, did it cost you anything else? John would say, it cost me my life. Because after being in prison for that year to year and a half, oh, I don't want to my glasses off. Off? That would have been good, huh? You know, one time I was preaching on a wooden floor. And I, made, I went to make a point like this, and my watch went off. It was just wooden floor, and went right, right across it. And I thought, I was hoping I would rethink, and I picked it up and say, Timex takes a licking and keeps on ticking. But I, and I, anyway, I did. So anyway, my glasses are on, so here we go. But at the end of that time, he's imprisoned, and he dies. Head chopped off, and that's it. That's pretty costly, isn't it? John. Was it worth being a witness? What would he tell you today? <laughs> he would tell you from the bottom of his heart, it was the greatest thing I ever did. You know what Matthew chapter 11 says? John the Baptist has this crisis of faith. And Jesus encourages him. And then he turns and he looks at the crowds. I just love this. Jesus does not turn and look at the crowds and say, you know, John the Baptist, like what a loser. You know, he's supposed to be a guy on my team and he's asking, no, no. Jesus just has all kinds of words of affirmation for him. And in the process, he says this in Matthew eleven eleven. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. With all of the sacrifice, with all of the frustration, with all of the diminishing returns, with all of the whatever you want to say, whatever you want to say, John the Baptist would tell you, witnessing about Christ is living out the most privilege design that anybody could ask for their life. And when Jesus looks back, in the midst of a man questioning and having doubts, Jesus says, there is no one that has ever been born that is greater than John the Baptist. That's a really an amazing statement to me, isn't it? Why? Because he never doubted? No, he doubted. Why? Because he never sinned? No, he sinned. And I'm thinking to myself, there's a lot of heavy hitters behind this guy. Daniel and Abraham and Moses and Joseph. Man, I got a whole list of guys from the Old Testament. You know why? John the Baptist was able to point to Jesus Christ more clearly than anybody that had come before him. And because that was the case, he would stand at the end of his life and say, there was nothing greater than witnessing to him because I had the greatest of all privileges. I got to say, it's Jesus. 
So what's that say to us? You say, Doug, I, I don't go to the wilderness. But I do know this. To witness. Not just to witness. To be a witness. Will cost you. Is it possible that we have some in our group here that God may be tugging their heart like he did Marie who is now ministering in Cambodia? Is that possible? That, that for you to say, God, whatever, I want to witness that God may put his finger on something in your life and say, I want you to go overseas for me. It may be. I'm, I, I, it, it won't be the majority. But it could be some, couldn't it? It could cost you your livelihood. C could it cost you your reputation at work? Oh, here, here she comes again. They just drive me crazy. They always Jesus this and Jesus that stuff possible could it mean more tension between you and family members yes it could I, I there will be some cost our cost will never probably compare to anything like John the Baptist is it possible that some would become missionaries overseas and God calls you to a Muslim culture and you would go there and you would die for the name of Christ Possible. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. It won't cost us as much as it cost John the Baptist, but it will cost us to be witnesses. You know, I was watching a video this week again on William Borden. You've heard of Borden Butter, you know, that whole Borden company, you know. I think he was born 1887-ish, something like that. And um, as a young man, he was an heir. He was a millionaire. A millionaire in the 1900s. Think about that one. And we went to Yale. He decided to push it all away and to give his life to become a missionary to the Muslims overseas. And God so used him that they said when he was at Yale, he started Bible study. And I, I hope I have these numbers right. But out of something like 1,300 students, 1,000 of them were involved in the Bible studies because of William Borden. And in his Bible, he wrote the word, no reserves. There were no reservations in my life. He chooses to go to Egypt to learn Arabic so that he could minister to the Muslim people. His father writes him a letter and says, you have lost the inheritance and everything because of what you're doing. And in his Bible, he writes the word, no retreat. Goes to Egypt, and as a 25-year-old man, he gets spinal meningitis and dies. And one of the last entries in his Bibles is no regrets. Humanly speaking, you'd have to look at that story and say, what a waste. For a man to say, I'll give up everything to witness to Christ to people that have never heard.
God's just asking me to talk to a gas station attendant next week. Like how, and give him a track. Like how hard is that? I can go to the station across the way if there's a problem. You know what I'm saying? Folks, I didn't read the end of Matthew 11, 11. Did you notice that? This is an incredible verse. It, it's first time this really hit me. I don't know if Tim remembers this. We were actually sitting in a class together 20 years ago. Do you remember that? And, 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 and I, I remember hearing some guy speak on this, and it was just like, it just nailed me. Listen to what it says. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Okay, I get it. I get it. But look at the end of the verse. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Did you know that Doug Finkbeiner is greater than John the Baptist? Did you know that Carmelo is greater than John the Baptist? Steve, greater than John the Baptist. Jim, Jim, you're greater than John the Baptist. And, and I can work right around the, everywhere. Dan, you're greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because our character is so much deeper than his and we know. You know why it is? John the Baptist could point to Jesus Christ more clearly than anybody that came before him. But you know what? I can point, and Carmelo can point, and Dan can point, and Jim can point, and you can point to Jesus Christ more clearly than John the Baptist could. We know more than John the Baptist. We know death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know second coming. We know the full picture. It was fuzzy for John. Witnessing, to be a witness is to live a life of great privilege as God has designed. That's it. So whatever the cost, my brothers and sisters, will you pay it? Start with something incremental and small and watch God act. Next week, when we come back, I want to just talk through some practical pointers on evangelizing from the Apostle Paul from Colossians chapter 4. But I just wanted to exhort you today, this whole idea of evangelism, witnessing, being a witness, it's got to be at the core of who we are if we name Christ. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, I want you to know there's nobody more important in the world to us than Jesus Christ. And we would, we would like nothing better than for you to bow the knee and trust him as Lord and Savior today. Father.